from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. This is Robert Siegel, former host of NPR's All Things Considered. Great Podversations features nationally recognized writers and journalists in candid conversation about books, ideas, and these challenging times that we're experiencing. Great Podversations is produced by the University of Louisville, Kentucky Author Forum. It's an honor for me to continue my long relationship with this series, which televises its forums on PBS affiliates as Great Conversations. Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley speaks with NPR journalist Eleanor Beardsley about Ms. Smiley's latest book, Perestroika in Paris. Jane Smiley is the author of many novels, short stories, nonfiction books, and young adult novels. In addition to the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, Smiley has been awarded the Fitzgerald Award for Achievement in American Literature. She teaches creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. Eleanor Beardsley began reporting from France for NPR in 2004 as a freelance journalist, following all aspects of French politics, economics, and culture. She's become an integral part of the NPR Europe reporting team, covering the first Arab Spring Revolution in Tunisia, where she witnessed the overthrow of that government. Beardsley covers all of France for NPR, including three French presidential elections, numerous Tour de France races, and the Soccer World Cup. We hope that you enjoy this great conversation with Jane Smiley and Eleanor Beardsley. Hello, Jane Smiley. I'm so excited to talk with you today. And I actually wanted to start off by saying that uh, I've just been out for my daily walk. I was at the Champ de Mars and I ran into Sid and Nancy. <gasps> You did. <laughs> Were they quacking constantly? Were they Absolutely. arguing? Oh, okay. Well, they just can't stop. So, How um, many ducklings do they have now? Oh, quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> just from your new book, we'll just start with that. I mean, I have to be honest. I have never read any of your books, but that is has, is changing now. I'm reading Perestroika in Paris. And I, I knew who you were, but I, like I said, I haven't read any of your books, but I started reading this book and it's absolutely beautiful, charming, touching. I'm chortling all the time. I'm just lying in bed reading it, just laughing. And your animal characters, at first I thought a story about a horse in Paris. Come on. You know. <laughs> well, that's exactly the thing you were supposed to think. Exactly. And okay, so first of all, everything you talk about, these are this is my neighborhood, you know. Every street you talk about, every place, I know it. And you know Paris so intimately. So I, I guess the first thing I want to ask well, you that's is that's like, a great compliment because I don't know Paris very intimately. I've really? I've walked a lot I've I've walked around. I love Paris and I love walking around in Paris. And I wish I did know it intimately, but so maybe sometime in the future. Oh wow. Okay. Jane, I just have to say, this is when I thought this woman really knows Paris or France. And this really cracked me up as I'm reading about um, Sid and Nancy and how Sid migrates and Nancy says, oh, he probably doesn't go to all those all those exotic uh, vacation places. He probably just goes to the Lac du Der Chantecoq. And I'm like, <laughs> what is this like? And I look it up and I'm like, oh, my God, this is some obscure, probably, I don't know, hickey lake in the east in the middle of nowhere. 
where do you get, where did you get that? You know, Google maps. I know, but how did you, <laughs> I know that's like some sort of hick town lake. How would you even. I just wanted him to go to some, I wanted her to say something naughty about him. Something yeah, not was, very nice. It was so, so good. I actually love Google maps and we, I take the Google boy for a walk uh, quite often. Very nice. I would like, I'd like to ask you, would you read a passage from your book, something that you, anything you'd like that's funny or that shows the animal's personalities or something you liked writing? Well, let me read the part where Frida and Paris first meet. Okay. She bumped smack into the horse's front legs. The horse was standing over her, staring down at her. That was how interesting the money was. She hadn't even heard the horse approach. Frida froze, and the horse sniffed her, snorting a little bit, which was frightening, but not showing her teeth. Frida cleared her throat and sat with dignity, she thought. The horse touched noses with Frida, then put her nose on the purse. Frida knew this meant, the purse is mine. Frida sneezed. She often did this when she was nervous. Finally, she managed to say, are you lost? The horse said, I don't know. Frida said, are you from around here? The horse said, I don't know. Frida had never been to the race course, even though it was only a few kilometers away. Frida said, what's your name? The horse said, they call me Paris, but my real name is Perestroika by Moscow Ballet out of Mapleton by Big Spruce. I am a descendant of Northern Dancer and Herbage, and I go all the way back to Saint-Simon on my dam side. What does that mean, said Frida? Those are my ancestors. Some were very good racehorses. Did one come from Moscow? Where's Moscow? It's in Russia. You can hear people speaking Russian right here in Paris. Frida had heard her human, Jacques, and another busker talking about this from time to time. They said that Russians love Paris. She said, you must know that perestroika is a Russian word. I didn't know that, said Paris. She thought it was a nonsense word like giddy up or wowsy dowsy. It had a sharp rhythm too, like the rhythm of a good trot. Nice. And um, these are the great characters. Your little dog, Frida, is just wonderful. But she wants you to know she's a big dog. Yeah. Where did you get the idea for this book? And and how do you, I know you've written books about horses before. Like I said, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading of your books now. But what, where do you get these characters? I mean, they're so, they're not Disney-esque. They're real. They're I just the, the the you know Parastroika and, and Frida the dog and Raoul and they're just they're just charming they're wonderful they're they're crotchety old people they're real what how did you come up with this idea <laughs> Well the the horse character Paris Parastroika is based on my horse she's now about she just had a birthday so she or she's about to have a birthday so she's almost uh oh don't tell her sixteen but I bred her and she was totally interesting from day one. And one of her, one of her qualities is that she is a very curious horse. And if I take her for a walk, she's always looking, Oh, what's there? What's over there? What's over there? 
we have a particular mounting block that has a lid. And if I, if she walks past it, she'll open the lid and check what's in there, you know? So I fed, so she was my horse and I happened to be in Paris visiting a, a woman, a friend of mine who horse, a racehorse trainer in Paris. And then we went and had French onion soup in the Place de Trocadero, where I'd never been before. And I loved that particular area. I thought it was fascinating and quite different from, you know, Montparnasse or other parts of Paris where I'd been. And so then I thought, well, wouldn't that be fun if a horse escaped from the uh, the racetrack and came into Paris? And obviously she'd come here and because uh, it's on the west side, as you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. um and one of the reasons it's a beautiful spot is that it's on it's up a hill. So you can stand in that area and look down the hill and then across over uh, into the Champ de Mar and other parts of Paris. It's a really gorgeous spot. The dog is also uh, my dog. And um, she she was a dog who we adopted after she... Well, she was a naughty dog. Her pair, her her owner had left her at home, and she ate some of the furniture. <laughs> I love her strong front paws for digging. <laughs> yeah, she's a great digger, and she loved to go to the beach and dig up hole, dig holes, and she really loved to dig. I don't know what it, what she was looking for all those years. She she's now died. She died when she was about fifteen, but. She loved to dig. So um, those are the ones I know. And and, and, and Raul the Raven? Well, those characters are just made up from, from me walking around Paris and looking around and seeing what kind of animals were around, especially around the Champ de Mars. So I, I saw tons of ravens flying mm-hmm. around. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like I know them now, and it's so cute. I just <laughs> and um, then and I loved. Now things have changed in the around the uh, Eiffel Tower and in that area of the Champ de Mars since I thought up the book. They've rebuilt some things and they've done a lot of work, so it's not exactly the same as it was then. But the um, I remember seeing mallards in the ponds. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if the ponds are still there, or the little bridge that goes over the ponds. Yeah, um, there's. I think I know the one where where Nancy was laying. They, Sid was building the nest. Yeah. So yeah, so I saw the mallards there, and I saw the raven, and I I loved looking at the houses on the on both sides. Um, I did see the bakery where I. I put the baker Anias mm-hmm. and um, I picked one of the houses because those houses are very, and I think some of them have also undergone changes since 2008, but the houses are very interesting. And um, so I just sort of wandered around and I tried this and tried that. And well, it's stuck it's it all like, in. Yeah. It's like, you know, sometimes I don't like to read books about Paris because either I feel like, Oh, darn, why couldn't I have written something like this? Or, or, <laughs> it, or either it's somebody who yeah, doesn't really know it, but I feel 
your book is so cozy, yet it's so interesting and it's funny. And anyway, I haven't finished it yet. I'm looking forward. I read it every night now. So good. You've written so many books. I I guess you've always known you wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Well, I've always been interested in horses and, um, and it was evident that I wasn't going to end up a career equestrian because I didn't have the skills. But I was also really, really interested in books. And when I was uh, a a, a senior in high school, my parents let me go to London for two weeks to visit some people that they knew who lived right near Hyde Park. And I was so fascinated and I loved it. They, They were, these people were great to me. They took me to a lot of museums and showed me a lot of things around London. And of course it was, I was a total beetle maniac. So that fast, that was part of my fascination. And then I came home and I wrote my senior paper about my trip. And I thought, wow, this is really fun. I really enjoy this. And that was it. Um, Books plus London plus writing my paper did it. So how many books, I was just, uh, I was listening to an interview with you about the, this uh, novel in Kansas. I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton. Yes. I mean, how do you come up with your subjects? <laughs> well, they're all different. Yeah, exactly. So they all have different inspirations. You know, some people would say my oddest book is The Greenlanders. But when I was growing up, I was totally fascinated by the history of the English language. And one of the things that fascinated me was the um, the Nordic aspect that, uh, you know, the Scandinavian bits of language that got into English. Then I became interested in um, medieval uh, Nordic literature, like the Icelandic sagas. And then I became interested in, and then I went to Iceland uh, on a Fulbright And I thought that was a totally interesting place. And then somebody, I remember talking there about the the, uh, Nordic people that lived uh, in Greenland during the Middle Ages. And then that uh, civilization died out. And I thought that was interesting. So that my, my earliest plan was eventually to write about the end of the Greenland civilization of the Nordic Greenland civilization. And so I set out to do that, but I knew I needed a lot of practice. So I got, I wrote a bunch of other books in some ways as a practice for writing the Greenlanders. And so I just got in just, I just got used to writing different types of books and um, investigating different places and, you know, trying out this, trying out that. That's it's got it's a habit I was unable to break. So, how many years have you been writing now? And do you struggle? Do you have you ever struggled? Do you still struggle? Do you have writer's block? Are there certain times, hours of the day you write? I've been writing basically for about fifty-two or three years, and some books are harder than others. Um, the one I wrote called Private Life which I didn't expect to be hard turned out to be hard for reasons that I didn't took me a while to understand. And then I sort of figured it out. 
um, ones that I expected to be hard, like the Greenlanders, that weren't they weren't hard. Let me say one thing about the Greenlanders. The first 50 pages were a struggle because I had to figure out how to get into the sort of mind of and spot of medieval Greenland. But then eventually it got to be just like putting on my bearskin rug and being transported into the past. So that turned out to be much easier um, and stranger than I expected. So I always start a project knowing that it's going to be different than I think it's going to be. But trying to maintain my interest in it by thinking of it as a puzzle that um, has to be solved and, and there's pleasures in solving the puzzle even when you're a little frustrated. That's interesting. So I guess you have, have, have you been to Greenland? Yeah. Okay. Have you been to? The- a lot of people have been to Greenland now, but when I went, when I went there in 1984, it was quite uncommon to go there and very strange. You had to fly to Denmark and then the, from Denmark, you could fly to Greenland. Um, and uh, the scariest thing was when we went to land at the place in Greenland where I wanted to go, there was such a tailwind that the the plane got almost down to the landing area and then realized that it was going to be driven by the wind into the cliff at the end of the landing area. So went down and took off again, went up north and then came back. <laughs> so, oh. so that was my Greenland story. Wow. And then when we when we went back, I'd been I was there for about a a week, maybe. Yeah, I think it was about a week. And then when we went back to Denmark from Greenland, the flight attendant handed out our meal. I don't remember what it was, but I think it was some kind of um, some kind of cooked game. And she told us to watch out for uh, shot in <laughs> in the game not tr- don't eat the shot that was probably in there and I thought well I've never heard that on TWA or American Airlines so wow <laughs> that was an interesting part too that's great so I wanted I, I'm, I'm I mean I could tell that you intimately know horses which was lovely because I don't and I loved uh hearing about how they are. And I, I really thought you knew Paris very well, but do you, um, do you speak any other languages? Do you? No, no. Where do you, where do you live now? I live on, in California, uh, in the central, in the central coast, uh, near Monterey, California. So what, uh, what are you working on now? And are you ever, have you written, are you inspired by politics? politics, any political books, or all the strange times we've been living? Well, I did write, um, but my last book, my last set of books was a trilogy. Um, well, actually, these are the last books I wrote for adults that were pu- that was published in um, 2014 and 2015. It's called The Last Hundred Years Trilogy. And that was very political because it was exploring the sort of political implications of all kinds of aspects of American life. And, um, you know, I have, and, you know, the all true travels and adventures of Liddy Newton was very political. I 
I think it's important for novelists to take to talk about politics and to explore politics. And usually my that's one of the things my favorite novelists are are ready and able to do. But this one, I just was having so much fun with it. Um, and Perestroika. It me, yeah, it made me so, it gave me such pleasure to be writing it. And I didn't think it was political. It's animals, you know. No, they exactly. have their they have their disagreements, but they aren't exactly political. Don't tell me what happens. I love <laughs> and his great grandmother. That the, the character, the human characters are great too. What will you do next? Do you always have a next book project? Oh yeah, I you know the place where I live is totally fascinating. It is um, where California essentially started, and Monterey. California was the state capital for exactly a year um, when Monterey first became, or when California first became a state. Um, there are four or five small towns in, on this one peninsula, the Monterey Peninsula, and each one is really different from the others. Monterey, the former state capital or the one-time state capital, is beautifully, beautifully um, maintained, and they've and they still have a lot of the original buildings. So that inspired me uh, so, to do um, a murder mystery set in Monterey in the eighteen early eighteen fifties. So that's what I'm working on now, and um, my editor is reading it, and so we'll see what she has to say, but. Um, it it so that's my inspiration, the, the local inspiration. Very, very good. I, okay, I'm I'm as a journalist. Sometimes people say, "Why don't you write a book?" And I just I don't think I can. My I love just getting a story done and having that feeling of you, you do it and it's done. And I can't imagine <laughs> having a book, the research, how it can go on, and how do you write a book? How long does it take you? And when do you? You know, these are just basic things. But when do you write? In the morning? At at at, at night? And how do you mm-hmm. keep it going? Is it a constant obsession for two years, three years? I, I mean, I like to finish my work, and then I feel great. I did that story <laughs> done. On to the next one. So how did how is writing a book? How do you go about it? Well, I I'm the tortoise, not the hare. Um, yeah, I I usually do it in the morning. I love doing the research. The research involves reading stuff. And um, understanding the place that you're setting it, but it, for me, it also involves going there and walking around and and looking. For example, when I was working on Liddy Newton, which was set in Kansas, I lived, I grew up in St. Louis, but I'd actually never been to Kansas. So um, I took a trip to Kansas to look around, and I had expected a kind of flat. Um, dry spot. And actually where it was set in Lawrence, it was a beautiful um, hilly forested spot. So that was interesting. And I guess every book I I like to go visit. Um, One of the great things about writing a mystery in Monterey is that you get to set in Monterey is that you get to walk around Monterey, which is a beautiful place and drive around the peninsula and our valley is set between two mountain ranges. And um, 
it's a very interesting valley. So I don't know. I, I like doing the research. I like working out the plot. I like um, thinking about the characters. And sometimes at the start, it's a little frustrating because you think, hmm, I don't quite know how I'm going to do this. I don't quite know what to do. But then you keep doing the research and at some point it all comes together and you think, oh, I got it. I can figure this out. And it starts moving more quickly and uh, it has its own energy that sort of pulls you along. And I really like that. That's interesting. So how long, for example, did it take you to write Perestroika in Paris? What's the range of uh, your book? Yeah, no, I started it in 2009, and but it wasn't that it was difficult to write. It was that I had other projects, and so I'd go away from it and come back to it. It was, it was like Perestroika in Paris was sort of a vacation from other projects because it made me laugh, and I enjoyed writing it so much. Um, and other books have, some books take a long time. Some books really don't, but, um, once they sort of come together and sweep you along, then hallelujah. It's amazing. You talk about it, like solving it like a puzzle and it having its own energy. I love that. Would you, um, a lot of young people ask me, what advice do you have to become a journalist? And I tell them what I tell them and then. You know, and then I wonder, gosh, am I too optimistic? Maybe things have changed. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's really hard to make it as a writer. And what, what, what do you what kind of advice would you give aspiring writers? Well, the first thing you have to make sure they understand is that it's not the rewards that you're aiming for. It's the pleasure of actually doing it. And if you take pleasure in actually doing it, then you just want to do it. And you got to, and as for the rewards, you got to hope for the best. And, but you have to understand that publishing is a business that's constantly changing. And um, you can't, there is no guarantee about what it's going to be like, you know, 25 years from now, whether that's going to be similar to the way it is now. One thing that always strikes me when I, look back on the history of the novel is that realism and fantasy come and go. So there are certain periods where like the, like say the last 30 years where realism was very interesting and important, but then um, there are other periods where fantasy or horror is the big deal. And I have students because I teach at um, one of this University of California campuses. And one thing that always interests me is that my students now prefer fantasy and horror to realism. And so that seems to me to indicate that we're back into an era where fantasy and horror are the most saleable or the most popular forms. But eventually we'll go back to realism. There are things you learn from both. So I just want my students to be aware of all the possibilities and what their own predilections are and just to do it because they can't, they can't stop. 
You spoke a little bit about when you were you went to London when you were in university. What was your where did you grow up and what was your childhood like and what do you were you a huge reader? What what do you think led you to this destiny? Well, I grew up in a small suburb of St. Louis, Missouri called Webster Groves and it was a wonderful place to grow up because it was a it was a beautiful town, but it was also really different. Uh, there, it was very diverse. So my grandparents lived, and I spent time with my grandparents because my mom worked at the local newspaper. And so my grandparents lived um, in your basic middle-class neighborhood. You walked up the street and you got to your basic upper-class neighborhood. Um, and then we had relatives maybe a mile away in the same town who lived in your basic upper, upper class neighborhood. And then our house, which was about a mile from my grandmother's house was your basic falling apart working class neighborhood. So, and I love to walk and my, my mom was really good. And my grandparents too were really good about letting me get out and about so I love to walk. So I love to look at all the neighborhoods and the houses and um, the the other kids. And so St. And St. Louis had been a very, I don't know, St. Louis is a truly oddball city. It has a lot of history. Um, it has a lot of beautiful buildings. It has a lot of parks. It has beautiful vegetation. But it, currently, it has an incredibly high murder rate mm. and a lot of social socioeconomic problems um, downtown. So here you have a city with some of the poorest neighborhoods in the country and also some of the richest neighborhoods in the country. And they're smack dab right against one another. So... Um, Whenever I go back there, I'm totally fascinated. I still love to walk around. I still love to look at that town. I still think it's one of the most interesting cities in America. And I was quite glad to grow up there. But then I'm also quite glad to be in this particular neighborhood in California, which is very, is so strangely different and diverse. So growing up there, what made you want to write? Did, were you a huge reader? Was it? Yeah, I love to read. And, you know, I started out as a kid, like everybody, with books like the Bobsy Twins, you know, series books and Nancy Drew. And I thought I was reading secretly with a flashlight under my covers, but I think my mom knew exactly what I was doing. And because she was a journalist and also loved to read, she didn't care. She didn't care if I stayed up, you know, an extra couple of hours reading the Bobsy Twins at school or whatever I was reading. Anyway, I love to read. We had a wonderful public library in Webster Groves. And then um, there was another, when we moved out of Webster Groves, there was another public library that I would go to. And I read all kinds of books. I read, um, you know, Charles Dickens in school that I liked. I read Jane Austen on my own. I read Agatha Christie on my own. But I always had a book in my hand, and I was mm -hmm. always a book reader. Now, I one of the things I would say about myself is that I've had glasses since I was seven, 
And my habit when I was reading would be to take off my glasses and put the book right up against my face so I could actually see it, you know, because I was so nearsighted. But the result of that was there was a way when you hold the book right up to your face, there's a way that it cuts out everything around it and it becomes your world. And um, I still do that. I still don't use reading glasses to read books. I still put it right up against my face and, and go deep. So interesting. What do you read now? I mean, do you have time to read between all your writing? and? <laughs> well, I te- yeah, I teach um, writing and literature. So most of the books that I'm reading right now are books that I've assigned for class. And so I'm teaching two classes. One is a, a exploration of the family novel, family-based novels. And the one we're getting ready to talk about is The Fountain Overflows by Rebecca West, which is a, it's about her childhood. And then um, for the other classes, which is a w- other class, which is a class in point of view, we just finished, we're, we're doing, we did first person, now we're doing second person, then we're going to go on to the various forms of third person. So for first person, we read I Tituba by Marisa Conde, which is from the point of view of a slave mm. from Barbados. Fascinating and wonderful book. Okay. And then we read um, Self Help by Laurie Moore. And some of the stories are in first person. Some of the stories are in second person. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have, you know, that, that, those are fun to read. And I'm enjoying teaching both of those classes. I have a question. This might not be interesting to everyone, but today <laughs> with all of the screens, I mean, my son's 14 and I'm always pushing him to read. And he always says, well, you didn't have, you know, iPhones or iPads. And of course we have all the controls and all that, but it just seems today, how do you get kids to read? I mean, that's not your specialty maybe, but today when there's a screen and my fear is like they go on the screen, why would they pick up a book when they've got a flashing screen and it seems so much harder now? I don't know. One of the things is though, that my, my undergraduate classes are full of students. So some people are reading. Yeah. You know, we used to say, I used to say of my kids, my husband and I between us have five kids and they're, they're not young anymore. My, the youngest is 29, but Is he really 29? (laughs) Anyway, we used to say, um, no, he's 28. That's better. Yeah. We we used to say the oldest one loved to read. The second oldest one would read anything. The, The third one, she would only read about animals. The fourth one, he could read. And the fifth one, my son now... We didn't know if he could read, oh, <laughs> but uh, but now he's uh, he works in animation. Mm-hmm. He does anima- animation effects so that if let's say there's a wind blowing in your animation, um, he's the one who made the dust rise into the air. So oh, it's, wow. it's a really fascinating thing that he has to do, and it's, it's very has a lot of variety, and then. 
but I will say that when he was 17 or 18, he started talking to us in this very sophisticated way. And we said, are you actually reading stuff? And he said, well, yeah. (laughs) I have hope. (laughs) That's funny. Well, um, I guess maybe I'll ask you um, if, unless you have some, something you want to add, but I would like, what do you want to ask you? What do you hope readers will get out of um, Perestroika in Paris? What, what sort of feeling pleasure? Well, just a sense of community and, and a, I, you know, I want them to laugh and smile and then, and feel drawn to the animals. And I want them to see Paris as best they can. And I just want them to feel good. Well, you certainly do all that, uh, really. I mean, I I was a doubter, and I'm just lying in bed. My <laughs> husband's like, "What?" And I'm just laughing, and I start reading him paragraphs. It's, he's a Parisian, so I'm like, "This woman really, this is right down the street," you know. <laughs> what part? Of, where Where do you live? What part? Do I you live in the fifteenth, so you know the Trocadero. I know exactly what you're talking about, and the Champ de Mars because I walk to the Eiffel Tower basically every day. And oh, uh, cool. Yeah. Great spot to live. One of my favorite walks there was down Avenue Emile Zola. Oh, yes. I'm right which here. Which is a really long street and it fascinating. Um, and that I, I wasn't really familiar with that side of Paris. And I thought mm-hmm. it was totally interesting when I visited there and, and explored. Exactly. Okay, well... It was very nice to meet you, and I look forward to plunging into many more of your books now. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jane. Please visit KentuckyAuthorForum.com for more information and for show notes on today's podcast. And please take a minute to rate and review Great Podversations in your podcast app. Great Podversations is distributed by Louisville Public Media. It's a production of the University of Louisville, Kentucky Author Forum, Mary Moss Greenbaum Producer, Evie Clare Associate Producer, and Leslie Sissel Consultant. Great Podversations is supported by Bittner's, Brown Foreman Foundation, the Geens Foundation, James Graham Brown Foundation, and LDG Development. We hope you enjoyed this Great Podversation. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to your joining me for the next Great Podversation. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.